0: Well, I'm going to say something that might uh, seem painfully obvious to you, but I'm going to make a statement that ministry is hard. Ministry is hard. And what do I mean by ministry? I don't just mean ministerial vocational workers. I'm not just talking about pastors. I'm talking about the entire Christian life, right? We are all ministers. The, the book of Ephesians, in fact, tells us that pastors and teachers and evangelists were given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, Everyone in this room, if you're in Christ, is a minister. And ministry is hard. Both our interactions in the local church and then the ministry we do outside the local church in the world is all very difficult sometimes. And the reason it's so difficult is the same reason why most things are difficult. And most things are difficult for a very simple reason. We are fallen people living in a fallen world. We are fallen people living in a fallen world. And this is especially what makes living in the world so difficult. Right? These, when we're outside of the walls of the local church, we're in an environment where people don't know God and don't love God, and they are fallen, sinful people, and that makes life difficult. But even when we come into the church, although we are redeemed and we are being made new, and, and there certainly should be a difference between those in the church and those outside the church, we have not received our resurrected, glorified bodies, and so we still sin. And so even in the church, we are a redeemed people but still fallen. So whether we are in the church or outside of the church, ministry is difficult. And I'm sure almost everyone in this room, if you've been going to church for a long time, whether it's in this church or maybe some of your past churches, you probably have experiences of of, of heartbreak and, and toil and frustration, even among the people of God and certainly I think I can speak universally where outside the church you have had difficulty in living a Christian life and trying to minister Christianity to people again I repeat ministry is hard and the Apostle Paul himself was uh, not at all um, prone to avoid the difficulties of ministry He, he himself probably more than any of us experienced just how hard ministry can be both inside and outside of the church And so if you would open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we are going to finish 2 Timothy today. And as Paul concludes his letter, what we're going to see is a little glimpse into how Paul overcame the struggles of ministry. When when ministry was difficult both in and outside the church, what did Paul do to deal with the inevitable struggles of living the Christian life? How did Paul deal with the struggle of ministry? We're going to see that in verses 9 through 22, or at least some of how he did it. If you would please follow along with me, beginning in verse 9, for these are the very words of God. Paul concludes by telling Timothy, verse 9, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Trous. Also, bring the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So, as we get a slight glimpse of in this text, although it's, it's painfully obvious if you've looked at the life of Paul in general, that Paul was again, exposed to, in a great deal to the struggles of ministry. And we see this all throughout the text that Paul specifically dealt with, again, not just external struggle, struggle from those outside of the church, but he also dealt with internal struggles, struggles within the very boundaries of the professing Christian faith. And we see that right from the get-go. He begins in verse 9. Let's just look at his struggles before we break into how he overcame them. We see he kicks us off with internal struggles. Struggles that have nothing to do with unbelievers and and people persecuting the church. But his own people, the very people of God, are making life hard for Paul. He says in verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. Now, why does he want to see Timothy? He, He begins by beckoning Timothy to come. And I'm sure there's, there's, there's ministerial reasons for this. There's logistical reasons for this. I'm sure that there's training left to be trained and there's education that still needs to be uh, educated to Timothy. But the most explicit reason he tells us is because he's nearly alone. Other than Luke, he's got no one. He says in verse 10, Come to me soon. Why? Well, because Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas shows up two other times in our New Testament in lists of men. And in one of those times, Paul refers to Demas as a fellow laborer in the gospel. Demas was Paul's friend. Demas was a laborer in the gospel. He was a ministerial partner with Paul. But he's not with Paul. He's deserted him. And Paul tells us explicitly that he's deserted him because he loves the present world. Now, I want to briefly explain to you somewhat, it's weird, it's um, the opinion I hold on this text is popular in the world of commentaries, but it doesn't seem to be very popular in the Christian world. Uh, Most people interpret Demas as being what we call an apostate, meaning that Demas has abandoned the Christian faith altogether. I don't take that reading. I think Demas is someone we'll be in heaven with. It's a very possible reading. I'm not saying I dogmatically know for sure that he was not apostate, but I don't take that. And here's why. Paul tells us that Demas deserted him. But here's the problem. If, if, if we take that desertion as being, he not only deserted Paul, but he also deserted Christ, then we're not just talking about Demas being an apostate. We're talking about the entire Asian church all falling into apostasy. And here's why. Because throughout the letter, Paul describes almost every Christian in the area as deserting him. Right? We saw it earlier in, in uh, I believe it was chapter 2. Um, he, he talked about, um, or forgive me, the end of chapter 1, he says in verse 15, Chapter 1 verse 15 He says you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me Among them are Phygellus and Hermogenes And then he goes on to talk about how Onesiphorus was one of the only exceptions out of the entire Asian church who actually was not embarrassed by Paul's chains so we already have the entire church in Asia turning away from him. We have two men by name turning away from Paul. And then look at what he says back in chapter 4 in verse uh, verse um, 16. At my first defense, and this, this would have been his, 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 his legal proceeding, his, his court case before Rome, his first court case, during my first offense, no one came to stand by me but all Same word used of Demas, deserted me. Demas, in my reading, is just another one of the many, many, many Christians in the area who deserted Paul. But what does Paul say in verse 16 after he says they all deserted me? May it not be charged against them. So I think Paul is telling us that this is not desertion from the Christian faith. Because Paul is saying, yeah, they sinned against me. They messed up, but may the Lord forgive them. Notice, he doesn't respond that way to someone who is clearly a non-Christian, an Alexander. Look at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. So those who deserted me, may it not be counted against them. Alexander, may he be judged. You see, I, I, I think Paul is not telling us that there was this great apostasy. I think Paul was simply reminding us that being friends with Paul was not easy. And there was a whole group of people, Demas himself included, that were not willing to embrace the suffering and the persecution and the social stigma that came with being friends with Paul, so they deserted him. Again, I don't see this as being apostasy. I see this as being cowardice. Now, it's, the reason it's, it is possible that Demas did turn from the faith is because Paul very specifically sort of identifies his reasoning when he doesn't do it for anybody else. Right? Only with Demas does he remind us that Demas is in love with the present world. So that, that could be read as apostasy. I mean, you see all throughout the Gospels, Jesus' message is that what does true discipleship look like? You have, to, you have to love me more than your family. You have to love me more than your own life. You have to love me more than your own comforts and securities. So this, this very well could, let me just be clear, this very well could be Paul identifying Demas as somebody who has been so romanticized to the world that he has chosen the world over Christ. That, that could be a reading. But I think, again, just the evidence in front of us, I think Demas is just one of the many brothers that were supposed to be at Paul's side, that was supposed to have Paul's back, that was supposed to be supporting Paul and defending Paul and helping Paul, decided that's too risky, but may it not be charged against him. But here's what we can agree on no matter what. Whether you see Demas as falling away from the faith altogether, or whether you just see him as being another one of the cowards of all the cowards in Asia who, other than Luke and Onesiphorus, who decided to abandon Paul, here's the point we can all agree on. Demas is not a role model. Don't be a Demas, in other words. Demas fell in love with the present world to such a degree that its comforts and its promises were more than sticking by a brother. Whether this is apostasy or not, I think it really is a great summation of all Christian cowardice and even all Christian apostasy. Here's what I mean by that. I did I did college ministry for a long time before I moved here And when you're doing ministry with college students, you see a lot of kids Come to school come to your ministry Come to church and they do it for a while and then you never see them again And me I sort of hound them and and I and I find them and we sit down and we talk about it And it's amazing how easy it is to give excuses, right? Well my professor said this about the Bible and my professor told me this. And, and the professors who are sort of arguing against Christianity sort of become the scapegoat, and I'm not trying to get them off the hook, but you know what was painfully obvious in almost all of my encounters with college students who left the church and who left our ministry? It wasn't because the professors said something they could have easily Googled and found an answer to. You know why? It's because college offered them a life that they couldn't refuse. It was, it was painfully clear. If I choose Christ, I have to give up all of this. At the end of the day, you want to know why college kids stop coming to college ministry? It's because they love the world. And that's the reason, in my opinion, almost anyone walks away from the Christian faith. They just, at the end of the day, the cost is too high. And even if it's not apostasy, half the time that we are not bold and faithful to do what we want to do is because a lot of times the cost is just too high. And what that almost always boils, see, Paul's not super specific with Demas. He doesn't give us a lot of details about Demas, what precisely happened, what was he pursuing, what what was his issue. We don't know a lot of details, but Paul summarizes it in a way that I think is applicable to all Christian apostasy and all Christian cowardice, which is simply this. In that moment in time, Demas found something more appealing in the comforts of the world than in the sacrifice of the faith. Demas and all who in Asia deserted Paul. In fact, at his first offense, no one stood by him. Paul is experiencing internal Christian struggles. What we see from Paul is this. It's not always the world who lets you down. Sometimes it's your brothers and sisters in the faith who let you down. The church life is not perfect. Things are still messy here. Here. Paul experienced that. But as we briefly mentioned, he did experience external persecution as well. As we looked at briefly, look at verse, let's just take a step back for a minute. He's writing this from prison, right? And he's about to die for his faith. So there's some pretty intense external persecution, the kind that most of us can't relate to. But he also says in verse 14, he says, Alexander the coppersmith, there are some people who take this Alexander as being an apostate because we learn of other Alexanders throughout the book of Acts who came to faith. So this could be an apostate. But the reason I don't think it is, is Paul goes out of the way to identify his vocation, his worldly vocation, right? This is not the former believer. This is not the co-laborer. This is, this is the coppersmith, right? This is a worldly, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a vocation, but I think Paul emphasizes that to let us know that this is a man outside the church. And this coppersmith, this man, this Alexander did Paul great harm The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And so he warns Timothy, verse 15, beware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message. So the harm done to Paul was likely not physical harm. Again, Paul was no stranger to that. The Jews would stone him and beat him and imprison him. Um, But I don't think Alexander touched Paul, but he did something probably far worse. This was a man who was publicly opposing the gospel message. This was a man who was publicly leading people away from the message that Paul was preaching. And he did Paul great harm in that, and that's why he tells Timothy that Timothy needs to be aware of him. Because this is a man who is interested in convincing your people to turn their backs on Christ. This is an intellectual persecution. So all throughout this letter, it's, it, it's almost kind of grim, Right? It's just struggle after struggle. My friends have deserted me. My church has deserted me. All have turned away from me. Alexander's persecuting me. Alexander's persecuting the church. I'm in prison. I'm about to die. Life's hard for the Apostle Paul. So how does he get through it? How does Paul overcome these ministry struggles? Well, I will suggest to you, we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at five important ways that Paul approached Difficulty in ministry that I think each and every one of them are very applicable to us. In the first way, the first thing that we see throughout this text, littered all throughout, is community. Paul desires community. Isolation is not an appropriate way to carry out your Christian ministry. We are not called to be alone. What I love about Paul is even in this text, the reason people abandoning him is so hurtful is because Paul so much loves what in theology we call the communion of the saints. That saints be gathered, be together, and love one another, meeting together regularly. This is huge for Paul. He begins in verse nine by by informing us of how desperately he wants Timothy to come with him because he's all alone except for Luke. This is the same Luke, by the way, who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But Paul's desperate for more companionship. That's why he says in verse 11, Luke alone is with me, but get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful in ministry to me. And, and, now, and then, and then he, he reminds us of all these other people who have, who have, have parted from him. And uh, these are people who are not, we should not be thinking of as deserters. Right? So, so Paul is alone because of desertion, but he's also alone because of this, the unfortunate fact that ministry never rests. Right? He had companions, He had Titus, he had uh, um, Tychicus, but he had to send them for important ministerial reasons to go minister to other people. So whether it was for ministry purposes or desertion, Paul is alone, and notice Paul's response is not, oh, thank the Lord, a little bit of alone time. Finally get some me time, these needy people, Golly. No, I want to see you. I want to see you. I want to see Mark. And we see this as he ends the letter. Look at how intensely relational Paul is in verses 19. Right, Paul is finishing like what is very potentially the last thing he will ever say to Timothy. And what does he remind him? Of the community of the saints. That even though there are Demas's and even though there are homogenases, even though there are people who abandon us, we need to remember those who haven't. Yeah, Demas is gone, but Luke is still here. And even though Demas and Hermogenes are gone, you know, at verse 19, Priscilla and Aquila and Onisorus tell them I said hi. Tell them I'm thinking about them. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. I'm thinking of Trophimus. I'm praying for Trophimus. You need to know he's sick. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings. Pudens, Linus, Claudia, all the brothers and sisters. He ends this by reminding him of this wonderful community we have in the saints. These are the people Paul longed to be with. These are the people Paul wanted to spend time with. And he ends his last letter to Timothy ever by saying, tell them I said hi. And these people say hi. This, This amazing community here. And so I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to not abandon the local church when the local church gets hard. Paul's response when his brothers started hurting him and sinning against him was not to then just throw in the towel and abandon community altogether. And we see that all the time. You would be amazed at to how many people that don't go to church but claim to be Christians, when you ask them, they will say something like, I was hurt. I was going to church, but I was hurt. So in other words, the thought process in their mind is because Christians can be hard to deal with, it's better to not be with them at all. But Paul's response is entirely opposite. There's a bunch of Christians who have hurt me. There's a bunch of Christians who have betrayed me. So how do I respond to that? I need more fellowship. I need Timothy to come to me and refresh me then. That's why, notice, turn back to chapter one. Look at what Paul says in verse three. This is how he opens the letter. I thank God who my service did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. The community of the saints was the joy and the life of Paul's ministry. Paul was not interested in saying, listen, I'm closer to God more when I'm out in the wilderness than I am inside the walls of a church. So I'm just going to, on Sundays, I'll just have some alone time, I'll listen to some devotionals, I'll go on a hike, and that's how I'm close to God. In in Ephesians chapter 5, when they kick a person out of the church, Paul says, we're handing that person over to Satan. Satan. To, to intentionally separate yourself from the life of the local church is to essentially say, Listen, I'm a Christian, but I'm much more comfortable being ruled in Satan's domain and living in Satan's house than in God's house. That doesn't sound very Christian to me. You see, Paul did not allow the pains of local church ministry to distance him from all Christians in the local church altogether. If anything, it it strengthened his thirst for his people. Sometimes the best ailment to our struggles is just intimate, close, communal relationships with like-minded people. Paul desired intimate discipleship, and discipleship is crucial to the success of the local church ministry. We need the communion of the saints. But tied to that is our second reason. So first, Paul desired community. But the second thing that that Paul fought against these ministry struggles with is this amazingly powerful tool that we call forgiveness. Forgiveness. This text has two examples of forgiveness in it. One is implicit and one is explicit. Let's look at the implicit one as it comes first. He says in verse 11, Luke alone is with me. And then he says, Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. You want to know why that's so amazing? The last time we heard of Mark in his relationship with Paul is found in Acts chapter 15 where Paul and Mark and Barnabas are in such a heated argument over Mark that Paul says, I can't even do ministry with you and he separates. Paul's original ministry companion was Barnabas. And Barnabas had a relation to Mark, and so Barnabas started bringing Mark along on their ministry travels. And at one point, the book of Acts doesn't tell us why, it's very brief, but for some reason, Mark abandons them. Mark's going along with Paul and Barnabas, and for some reason, he abandons them. And then later on, Paul and Barnabas gear up for another missionary journey, and Barnabas wants to bring Mark, and Paul says, Don't you dare. He deserted us. He abandoned us. He is not ready. He's not equipped. He's not willing. I don't want him along. And Barnabas is, 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 is steadfast. That No, he's useful. We need him. And Paul and Barnabas can't even make up their minds so that Paul deserts him, picks up a new ministry companion, and they go do their own thing, and Barnabas and Mark, and they go do their own thing. And that's, that's where that story in Acts, that's not how Acts ends, but that's where that story in Acts ends. Paul and Barnabas are fighting And it's all because Mark, Mark has caused a break in one of the most important biblical relationships in the book of Acts because of his unfaithfulness. So if if all you had was the book of Acts, you would think Paul doesn't like Mark. Mark's a coward, Mark's a deserter, and Paul was steadfast, he will not join me on my mission trips. And then all of a sudden, Paul writes to Timothy, bring me Mark because he's so useful to me. Reconciliation has happened. Forgiveness has taken place. You see how crucial this is to the life of the church? That Paul and Mark and Barnabas didn't just sit in bitterness and hold a grudge? No, I'll never get over this. For the sake of ministry, because we have been forgiven, at some point in time, Paul and Mark reconciled. And now we have the same Paul who said, I refuse to do ministry with this man. Is the same Paul saying, where's Mark? I need him. In other words, related to the first point we look at, your local church, the people in your church, Christians in your life are going to hurt you. How do you respond? Forgive them. But we see it more explicitly again as we briefly mentioned already in verse 16. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, so forget them, I don't need them. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, so do not associate with them anymore. No, no. And my first offense, no one came to stand by me. May it not be held against them. Can you imagine if that was more consistently our response to our brothers and sisters sinning against us? May it not be counted against them. As I said in the introduction, I'm sure that you have experience in the local church of being hurt, of being harmed. You might even be the rightful victim. Paul's not sharing the blame here. Paul's response is not, well, I mean, I could have handled this better and I shouldn't have done that to them. No, Paul's saying, they're wrong, I'm right. May it not be counted against them. I know that I, I I've, by the grace of God, have had a very pleasant ministry experience throughout my whole life, but, but I have gone through at least one time in my life where I was very hurt by the people in my church and I was very hurt by what was going on and I wish so badly if I could go back in time, I would have responded this way so much quicker. May not be counted against them. Now, I'm not saying, obviously, there are some sins and there are some offenses that the Bible lays out they need to be dealt with and we need to do things rightly. I'm not saying that every sin in the local church is flippant. I'm not saying. We, but just generally speaking, I think a lot of times our fights and our hurts are more petty than we think. You see, this isn't a petty thing that Paul's talking about. And still, it was. may not be charged against them. Unlike Alexander, who I, the Lord will judge him. May, may they not be judged. I would encourage us more often than not, perhaps sometimes when people rub us the wrong way or treat us in a way that we don't want to be treated, sometimes there are the right channels of church discipline and we have to go through those. But sometimes, just forgive them. I think we'd be amazed at how strong our ministry can be and how much more pleasant and joyful our ministry could be if we could learn to, to just forgive people. You have been forgiven of much, so you can forgive of little. May we all learn to be a forgiving people. Paul fought ministry struggles with community. He fought it with forgiveness. And then he fought it with something that, this is one of my favorite things, he fought it with Bible study. The third thing that we need to have a healthy church ministry is Bible study. Now where do I get that from? Look at verse 13. Paul tells Timothy, when you do come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Trous. Now, this cloak, what is this? This basically was a, a winter poncho. In the Greek, this word, it would have been a big, warm rug with a hole cut in it that you drape over yourself. And uh, later on, Paul tells Timothy to try to come before winter. So I think Paul's anticipating it's about to get cold in this dungeon, and so I need my coat. Um, so he asked Paul, Timothy to bring a coat, but he asks him to bring something far more important than the coat. What does Timothy need to bring with the coat? Well, he left the coat at Trous, but he says, also the books and above all the parchments. What is Paul talking about here? Well, I would argue that what Paul is wanting right now is he want, he's wanting some good old-fashioned Bible study. Uh, let me prove that a little bit by breaking these two things in half. First, let's, let's start with the study. What's, what's on, on the top of the text, we don't have to do a lot of digging, is whatever these things are that Paul's asking for, it's reading material and potentially writing material. So from a general perspective, before we talk about what he specifically, what are the contents of these books and parchments, we know in general that Paul's interested right now in some kind of study material. And isn't that fascinating? I mean, let's ask this question. What more does the guy have to study? He's about to die, right? It's not like he's training to go off to school somewhere. His life's over. And he's already accomplished more academic feats than most people can dream of. He's already taught the churches for years and written letters and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Here's a man at the end of his life, his ministry's over, his life's about to be over, he's got nothing but success in his rear view and here he's saying, I need to study. I want to learn more. You see, the Apostle Paul, just from a general perspective, imputes to all of us as Christians how important it is that we be a reading people. Christians need to be a people who have this mindset, as long as I'm here on earth, I'm ready to learn. I want to learn more. I want to learn as much as I possibly can and there's never a time to throw in the towel and say, listen, I'm done studying. Paul's studying literally up to death. Paul finds study and learning to be a valuable lifelong endeavor. Charles Spurgeon himself wrote in, or preached an entire sermon just on Verse 13. And it's a long sermon. And in that sermon, he has this famous quote. He says, Paul is inspired, yet he wants books. He's been preaching for at least 30 years, and yet he wants books. He had seen the Lord, and yet he wants books. He had a wider experience than most men, and yet he wants books. He had been caught up into the third heaven and had heard things which it was unlawful for men to utter, and yet he wants books. He had written the major part of the New Testament and yet he wants books. The apostle says to Timothy and so he says to every preacher, give thyself unto reading. The man who never reads will never be read. He who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. Brethren, what is true of ministers is true of all of God's people. You need to read. At a distance, before we really dive into this, we need to just understand briefly that Christians ought to be a people who value reading and study. I would encourage all of you to always be in some kind of theological development. Find a book, especially the day and age we live in with technology. You can buy a cheap Kindle, and I can show you a website where you can find hundreds of free books that are substantive and helpful. We need to always be studying and learning. We need to give ourselves under reading. The Apostle Paul was reading and studying up to death. But I would argue that he wasn't studying Greek philosophy, though he was familiar with that. He wasn't studying Greek poetry, though he was familiar with that. He wasn't studying anything in the medical world. He wasn't trying to uh, practice his calculus and his arithmetic. I think that what Paul wanted to study, specifically in this moment, was God's very word. Why do we say that? Well, first he asked for the books this is actually where we get our word "Bible" from. The Greek word "biblia" just means books. That's why the, when, you call stuff, when you call your Bible the Bible, you're saying it's the book. There's lots of books, but this is the book. That's what we're saying. But he asked for these generic books, and these likely would have been papyrus fragments. And and there is some. Some discrepancy in, in, the, in the academic world as to exactly what these things are, the books and the parchments, or your English translation might say something a little different. And some people suggest they might have been the, the, the Roman documents, documentation Paul needed for his court case. And the reason they say that is because the books, well, your English translation, the first thing there is books, and this says above all the parchments. Those parchments would be a much more valuable paper material. So papyrus was kind of the common way you wrote things down and it wasn't very stable and sturdy and reliable. But parchments was more expensive and more sturdy. So Paul basically says, bring me those kind of common documents. Uh, not necessarily common in content, but common physical substance. And then bring me the really expensive stuff. That's a plot. So people debate. But, but overwhelmingly, here's what the vast majority of, cons- of conservative believing scholarship suggests. That when we look at these words and how they're used in the Roman culture, there's almost no doubt that Paul was asking for Old and New Testament manuscripts. In other words, Paul was saying, bring me the scrolls. So this word for books was most likely scrolls, papyrus scrolls, which would have had Old Testament books on them. So Paul says, bring me your Old Testament copies and above all the parchments. And this likely would have been copies of New Testament material. Maybe the gospels beginning to be circulated saying of Jesus. But most likely they would have been Paul's own letters. Paul scholars believe was sort of creating his own canon and and here's why we think that that word parchment or your English translation might say something different uh, is the word that was borrowed from Latin it wasn't even a Greek word it was a Latin word borrowed into Greek to describe essentially what nowadays we would think of as a book the academic word is called a codex in the plural it's called codices a codex is just a fancy way of talking about a book. Now, this seems bizarre to us because books, I mean, well, now we live in the electronic age where we read invisible books, but before the explosion of the electronic age, books are what everybody had. This is how you read in a book. We have to realize books are a relatively new invention, and Christians are the ones who made it popular. Some suggest Christians were the ones who even invented it, and here's why. In the ancient world, the first century world, everything was done on scrolls. And that was okay for religions of the day because most religions of the day were mostly oral traditions anyway. They weren't a textual people. The only difference were the Jews and the Christians. These were a very textual people. The Christians were people who had a lot of text. They had a lot of important texts and they believed these texts were more important than other texts you can find on the street. So Christians needed something a little bit more efficient than a scroll, right? A scroll you can only write on one side and it's not very long. Can you imagine having an entire Bible on scrolls? You're talking hundreds of scrolls here. So the Christians were saying, we need something more efficient, especially if we're going to be delivering messages and delivering letters. And so what was recently invented in the ancient world was called a codex, which is people found out a way to write on both sides of the paper and bind them together. And the Christians said, yeah, we'll take that. And so the Christians, without even knowing it, were essentially canonizing the Bible for us because they were the ones originally putting stuff together, saying, okay, no, that doesn't belong, but this is Paul, and this is Paul. And Paul was likely doing that himself. He would likely write two copies of a letter. This was popular in his day and age. Send one off and keep one in his codex, keep one in his parchment. So Paul was essentially creating his own canon. And he's been stripped of these things in his imprisonment. So Paul's sitting in prison, and what does he want from Timothy? Bring me my Bible. The Old Testament scrolls and the New Testament parchments, I need my Bible. And so, this tells us more that Paul is not interested in just academic study, although that's important. As Paul is rotting away in a prison cell, away from his churches, Paul knows what's the only thing that can nourish my weary soul. And it's not Greek philosophy. It's not Greek poetry. He needs the word of God. May, it be, may that be our response as well. When your life begins to crumble and when you're struggling and when ministry is hard, may one of your first responses be, where's my Bible? Let the word of God nourish you and encourage you and help you. We need to understand that theology is supposed to have a spiritual effect. We don't just study to learn more, although that is an important reason why we study. We study to encourage and help and and transform us. As Paul is sitting in a prison cell, he's desperate for the Word of God. This is why, when we study our Bibles in in our common English vernacular, we call it devotions. Devoting ourselves to God, because we understand I'm not just studying like I'm studying for a test. I'm studying to be changed, I'm studying to be helped. As Paul sits in a prison cell, he says, you know what, winter's coming, I need my cloak, but if you can't bring that, here's what you definitely need to bring. Bring me my Bible. Bring me my Bible. The word of God is crucial to overcoming the struggles of ministry. And then briefly, I want us to look at our last two points. Paul not only valued community, he not only valued forgiveness, he not only valued the study of God's word, but in order to overcome The struggles of ministry, Paul also valued dependency. Paul knew that if you want to overcome the struggles of ministry, you need to be entirely dependent on the strength and grace of God. Look at what Paul says in verse 16 and onward. He says, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But here's what Paul knows even though his church abandoned him, he was not alone. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Paul knew that even though people come and go, even though people fail, my God is perfectly faithful. The one person I know would never abandon me is God himself, and he didn't. He strengthened me. He upheld me. And it is because of his grace and his strength that I got through what I got through. And that the message was still proclaimed. This is kind of a mysterious thing. Like what, what does it mean that God strengthened you? What does that even mean? Right? Do, do we have some meter or barometer on our body that tells us when the power of God is fully charged? Is it, in a, is it a feeling? It's like, oh, there's the spirit. I mean, What does it even mean? And I think to a certain degree we don't really know how to articulate it but I think we know it when it happens. I think we as Christians filled by the Spirit just know when we get through something and we're able to look back on it and say that wasn't me at all. If it weren't for the spirit, I would have crumbled. I would have failed. I would have caved in. But because of the power of God, because of the constant faithfulness of God, because he never abandoned me, because he strengthened me, I was able to get through it. I'd be willing to bet that when we get in the resurrection and we talk to any martyr, anyone who was martyred for the faith, and we ask them that question, how did you not give in? How did you not crumble? Why did you not forsake in in light of all the pain and turmoil and threats? How did you not give in? I guarantee every single one of them would say, I didn't. It wasn't me. It was God who strengthened me. It was God who got me through. You see, we need to realize that local church ministry is not done in our own efforts. It's not accomplished by our own strength and our own charisma and our own ideas and our own marketing Local church ministry, both inside the church and outside the church, is ultimately accomplished by remembering our God is faithful and he will strengthen us and he will be there with us and he will get us through what we need to get through. Dependency is vital to being dependent upon the Spirit of God who is constant and faithful and knowing he will never forsake us or abandon us. This is the strength that we need to overcome ministry struggles. Paul knew that the church failed me, but I was never alone. God was with me. And then he transitions into our last point, which is hope. In a world of pain, when when everything seems to be falling apart, one of the strongest weapons we have in our arsenal to fight against that is hope. To not grow discouraged. And and Paul transitions to this idea of hope in verse 18. This almost seems like a, a contradiction because he talks about in verse 17 how the Lord rescued him from the lion's mouth. And he says in 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. But well, we know that's not true because Paul was killed in Rome. Well, what Paul has done is, is Paul has shifted now from God's proven faithfulness in his physical circumstances to now transitioning that into that is a picture of his spiritual faithfulness. So in other words, God has delivered me time and time again from All of these things that should have ended my ministry. And that reminds me that it is ultimately God's purpose to fulfill my ministry and bring me to heaven. And no one can stop him from doing that. 18 is a spiritual deliverance. He says in verse 18, after reflecting upon how faithful God has been throughout all of Paul's ministry, he says, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And then that has caused him to praise God to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The reason Paul is not overwhelmed with fear and discouragement is because Paul remembers that great promise that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and he will deliver me into his kingdom. Nero and and, and Rome cannot stop God from saving me. Alexander cannot stop God from saving me. Demas cannot stop God from saving me. No matter our circumstances, we have this amazing hope that God is in control, strengthening us, and it is God who has promised to deliver us into his kingdom. Nothing can stop that. This is a doctrine in theology that we call the perseverance of the saints, that God will preserve his saints. He will persevere them in their faith. He will persevere them in their strength and he will deliver them into the kingdom. Notice, Paul credits everything in these last two verses to God. God is the one who strengthened me. God is the one who stood by me. God is the one delivering me. God is the one bringing me into his kingdom safely. God is the actor doing all of this to Paul. Paul. And so Paul's greatest hope, when everything is difficult, when everything is hard, when he has every human reason to be discouraged and depressed, he says, I'm filled with joy. Nothing can get me down. Why? Because I know my faithful God will deliver me and bring me into his heavenly kingdom. To conclude there, go to Romans chapter eight. The same Paul who spoke this about himself is the same Paul who promised this reality for all of us. Beginning in verse 31. Here's the hope for every Christian, no matter your circumstances. On the mountaintop or in the valley, here's your hope. He just got done talking about how it is God who predestines and calls and justifies and glorifies us. It is God who works all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And in light of that, Romans 8, verse 31, Paul writes these words, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's your hope. That is the reason to never grow discouraged. That is the reason why pessimism and nihilism will never win the day. But Christians are a hopeful, happy, joyful people that even if you're locked in a Roman prison cell awaiting your death, you are reminded that he will deliver me to his heavenly kingdom. He will bring me safely there. Nothing can separate me from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul was a hopeful man up to death and that hope can conquer ministry struggles. So just to briefly summarize, when ministry gets tough, Do not abandon the local church. Forgive your brothers and sisters. Find encouragement in God's word. Depend upon the grace of God through the Holy Spirit within you and delight in your promised eternal reward.